It is August 14th, 2017, and you're listening to the Landscape Photography Podcast. As always, thank you guys so much for tuning in. This week, we're going to be answering some questions that came in over on the Facebook group. If you're interested in the Facebook group, go over to Facebook, do a search for the Landscape Photography Podcast, and you can join the conversation there. It's where a lot of us are sharing our work and, you know, just giving feedback on the show and communicating with each other. Also, this week, we're going to be talking about ways to protect your camera gear rather than destroy it like I did this week. So sit back, relax, and let's jump into this week's episode. last two weeks, I've been traveling around the Pacific Northwest, taking a private workshop client pretty much to everywhere that I could squeeze in in 12 days. We started down in the Redwoods, we went up the Oregon coast, and then we went to the Columbia River Gorge, we hiked to a bunch of beautiful waterfalls, we went to Mount Rainier and photographed wildflowers, went to Mount Hood and photographed lakes, went down to the Bend, Oregon area and photographed places like the Painted Hills and Smith Rock and a bunch of other places. I am exhausted. It was a marathon of a trip. But I know that my client who is from Australia was just was pretty much dumbstruck by how diverse and beautiful the Pacific Northwest is. We really are spoiled up here in the Pacific Northwest. But it was kind of an expensive trip for me. First of all, I blew a tire or I ruined a tire and had to replace it. So boom, there's 300 bucks. And then I chipped my windshield. Boom, there's another 50 bucks to fix that. And then I dropped my 5D Mark IV with a 16 to 35 version 3 lens into a stream. Totally submerged it. And I'm pretty sure I completely fried it. I'm going to be saying it into Canon Professional Services today. And I do have insurance on it, but still, it's a big bummer. We have the solar eclipse coming up, and I'm not going to have my main camera body. My 16 to 35 is my baby. I use that lens all the time for landscape photography. It's going to really suck to be without that lens, but I'm sending it in. Hopefully, it all goes well. I'll let you guys know how the whole Canon professional services experience goes as well as the insurance part of it. This is the first time I've ever had to do an insurance claim on my camera gear. So that'll be interesting. Hopefully it all goes smoothly and quickly. I go through Allstate for my gear. For those of you that are are wondering, I have both business insurance because of my portrait business and because of my workshops. I need to have liability and coverage for all of that stuff. And then I also have renter's insurance, which covers a lot of my personal belongings and gear. And so between the two, I know I'm covered. I've never done an insurance claim like that before. So that will be interesting. I'll report back. So this week, I'm going to answer some of the questions that came through on the Facebook group, and let's jump into those. So Brent Bergherm, who we had on last week, asked, how many miles have you driven in the last 12 months? So I don't know exactly how far I've driven in the last 12 months, but I can tell you that last year, I drove 67,000 miles or thereabouts, an insane amount of driving. But the benefit to that is that that's a tax write-off. And anytime that I go on a photo trip, that gets to be a write-off for my business. So that's kind of nice. It's also really hard on tires and hard on vehicles. I fly through vehicles. So yeah, I drive a lot. 
Jesse Smith asks, what is your top tips for dealing with shadows and overall image brightness, especially with the darker images and themes that you've been shooting lately? First of all, the darker your shot gets, the more off of the left side of the histogram you have to keep it. Ironically, like if you have a really dark shot, you need to protect your shadows even more because if you let those shadows go all the way to the end of your histogram, you're losing a whole lot of information because the majority of your shot is down in that left part of the histogram. So the first thing I do is I will take like a curves adjustment and I will clip the blacks, meaning not let the blacks go all the way to black. The second thing is when I'm dealing with a really dark shot that has lots of those dark shadows, one of the things that I'll do to keep dimension and three dimensionality into the shot is that I will emphasize the highlights that are happening naturally in those shadows. I'll do that just with either a levels adjustment or using a luminosity mask to target those dark highlights. Ironically, the highlights that are happening in the dark areas of your photo. And I'll emphasize that that'll bring a little bit more dimensionality into your dark areas, but it'll also not let them feel too dark and too muddy and lacking detail. So maintaining detail in those shadows is one of the most important parts of processing a really dark shot. Justin Richardson asked, do you mostly process towards trying to recreate what you saw at the time or are you trying to create an emotion or process to create an emotion that you want to imply? It's somewhere in between. I'm not going totally crazy with um, going super creative with my color and white balance and stuff like that. I try to keep it realistic, but color plays a big part in the feeling of a shot. A cold shot feels sad. A warm shot feels happy. I'm oftentimes trying to uh, use color to convey the mood and emotion. I'm also using image brightness and luminosity to create that emotion. A, a bright shot feels happy. A dark shot feels sad. So if I'm, you know, trying to convey that emotion of sadness, I will go very dark and very cool. Each shot is different. Sometimes I'm trying to be fairly literal with what I photographed, you know, I, because what is there is interesting enough to me that staying very literal and how it was in real life is good enough for me. Uh, for example, I recently posted a shot of the painted hills where, you know, you get all of these uh, different colors and textures and rolling hills and undulations and stuff. And there's so much going on that I feel like it didn't really need any kind of creative processing to really make that shot special or to make that shot work because it was already interesting enough on its own. But some shots just need that little extra kick of emotion because it's you know, it's not so much about what's happening. It's about the feeling that's happening as you look at it. In those shots, I try to go a little bit more creative with my processing and try to convey that mood and emotion. It's interesting because every shot is different and it's hard to give just general rules of thumb. But typically I am trying to convey that emotion. But sometimes the subject is dramatic enough that it conveys its own emotion. Juan asks, composition tips for tropical forest photography where everything is really messy and difficult to find patterns. It's dark and then you get these strong rays of light. Uh, what tips do you have for photographing forests and rainforests? I can give you some rules of thumb for photographing forest scenes. First of all, try to never include the sky. A lot of my most successful forest scene shots are fairly telephoto and I'm keeping the horizon, the top part of my frame, 
below the area where you start to see sky through the trees. The reason for that is because those bright spots just end up being distractions. If you can keep your frame fairly dark and keep those bright areas between the trees out of your shot, it's going to totally put the emphasis on back onto the trees, onto the textures that are happening, onto the natural highlights that are ha happening in leaves and stuff like that. So tip number one is to never include the sky in a forest scene. Step number two is to try to find a very, a very obvious subject. Enrico Fassati, I feel like I bring him up in every single episode, but when we're talking about forest scenes and forest photography, his work really stands out because he's really good at doing these creepy tree portraits where he'll get really close to a really unique tree or bush or something and shoot wide angle and just make it look big and imposing. And it turns into this portrait of this really gnarly, cool tree. He's really good at that. And the lesson to be learned learned from that is that it's about finding an interesting subject and making that subject very obvious and very clear. Sometimes you can do that with telephoto lens where you're zooming way in and you're finding that that one tree or that one clump of trees that uh, is simple and photogenic. Sometimes it's by getting a wide angle lens and getting really close to your main subject. That way it becomes large and everything else becomes small. But really what it all comes down to is simplifying the composition, trying to eliminate all of those things that are going to take away from the shot and making the main subject and the main point of your photo very clear. When you're walking into a scene, you need to just kind of look around and figure out why do I want to photograph this area? and then try to compose a shot that only includes the things that are the reason you want to photograph it. A lot of times when you're photographing a forest, you're photographing it because of the cool backlight or the cool rays that are happening or the, the amazing trees that are there, but not so much because of the, the brush along the ground or the random bushes or the random little sticks poking out of the sides of the tree. Try to eliminate all of those little distracting elements that are not the purpose for the photo. Forest scenes are super, super difficult because you're dealing with such a chaotic scene. Actually, that's why I love doing it is because it's such a compositional workout where you really have to uh, work hard to f come away with something. But when you finally do come away with something, it's something that nobody else has ever photographed because nobody else has looked at that scene the same way that you are looking at it right now. Stanley Harper asks, what locations are on my bucket list that I've not been to? Quite a few. I, w I really want to go to Northern Norway. I think that that area is beautiful. I want to go to the Faroe Islands. That place looks amazing. I want to go to Patagonia. I want to go to uh, Scotland and photograph some castles. I'm kind of a history nerd. So like Roman occupation era history is really, really interesting to me. So I would love to go through Italy and just photograph lots of the old ruins and stuff. But I think those are probably the main things. Right now, I think Norway, Faroe Islands, and Greenland are definitely on my list. He also asks, what do I think about photographers that start teaching workshops in areas that they've never been to before? 
And that's an interesting question because there's a lot of photographers that do exactly that. They lead workshops at a place that they've never been before. And there's a couple ways that that can work out okay. For example, there's lots of workshop instructors that will team up with a local guy that has all of the local knowledge and the photography instructor has all of the photography knowledge. And a lot of the people that come to shoot with that workshop instructor, they're after his knowledge of photography and and post-processing and all of that stuff more so than the local knowledge. But there has to be that, that nice blend of both. In order for it to be worth the money that people are paying for a workshop, there has to be both, you know, the local knowledge of knowing where to go and what time of day to go and where to be and what's going to be photogenic at different tides and stuff like that. There has to be that local knowledge, but there also has to be good photography knowledge as well. Most workshop attendees want the full meal deal where they're getting both good instruction and good locations. That is what makes a workshop worth the money that people are paying. The problem that you run into with workshops sometimes is when you get an amazing photographer with an amazing portfolio and they get out there and they're not really a people person or they're not a great instructor. They're just kind of like standing next to you and doing photography and not really helping or not really instructing at all. That's something that happens. So looking at the reviews and maybe asking people that have been on that photographer's workshops in the past, making sure that all those people are happy and had a good experience is probably a good idea if you're looking to book with that person. Just because somebody is a good photographer does not necessarily translate into being a good workshop instructor and vice versa. Just because somebody is a good teacher doesn't necessarily mean that they have to be the world's most amazing photographer. You know, there's a lot of workshop instructors that are amazing teachers, but maybe not world-class photographers. And there's world-class photographers that are maybe not amazing teachers. So something to keep in mind and maybe looking at the reviews of people that have already taken those workshops is important. Also, Juan asks another question. He says, if I had to choose between the two, would I choose the F-stop tilopia bag or the F-stop Anja bag? So I have an old version of the tilopia, tilopia, tilopa, however you say that, tilopa bag. And I also have the new version of the Anja bag. Size-wise, they're really quite similar. The Anja is a little bit smaller and the tilopia is a little bit larger, but the size is very, very similar. At no point when I've been using the Anja bag have I been like, I wish this thing was bigger. The the only time that you would ever really want it bigger is if you're doing much like backpacking trips where you're packing stuff other than photography stuff. If you're taking a tent and a sleeping bag and a pillow and you start taking stuff like that, you're going to want a larger bag. But for photography, if you're doing a day trip and not sleeping in the woods, the Anja bag is going to be enough. In my bag, I'm able to fit my my camera body, three lenses and a drone all in the extra large ICU unit. I feel like it's plenty large enough for me, holds my large tripod comfortably. Although I will say that um, I've started running into a few issues with it. I Granted, when Nick runs into a few issues, it's because he abuses his gear and I've definitely abused my gear. I, I lay it down in water and mud all the time. And as a result, I have noticed that some of the straps, like one of my straps actually broke off on the back part of it. The straps that where you mount your um, tripod to, I've 
over tightened it and I ripped it off. Also, there's some like uh, Velcro expansion packs on the sides and the Velcro started coming off and it's most likely my fault. It's not I've never heard of other people having the same issues, but I have started running into some of those issues. So maybe take care of it a little better than I do and you'll have better luck with it. Jim McGrath asks, have I ever reconsidered switching from the Canon ecosystem? And if so, what camera body and system would I switch into? He's been aspiring to upgrade to the Canon 5D Mark IV, and now he's starting to uh, second guess that. So I'll, I'll start this by saying that I am completely content with my 5D Mark IV. Uh, at least when it was still working, I was. <laughs> Turns out it's not 100% waterproof because it died when I dropped it in a river. But... Uh, having said that, I prefer the Canon menu systems greatly over all the other menu systems. Like once you get used to Canon, it's it's just so self-explanatory. Everything's where you expect it to be. I feel like the the menu systems are just better on the Canon side. I also love the Canon lenses. Canon has, in my opinion, some of the best lenses out there. Having said that. I think that Sony definitely has the best sensors out there. Sony a7R2 right now is an amazing camera. And now that they're they're getting better with their autofocus systems, like in the A9, it's definitely got my attention. And I think that if I was to ever switch, I would think about Sony. The problem with Sony is that, for one, weather sealing is not notoriously good. In fact, it's notoriously bad. Which is ironic when you're talking about a camera that is so amazing for landscape photography, you would think that the weather sealing would be a very pivotal part of that, that body design, but it's not. The weather sealing in the, in the A7R2 is notoriously bad, and I've watched them malfunction many times when my camera wasn't. And so that is one of the major, major things holding me back right now. I have to assume that the weather sealing is getting better. Because I know plenty of people have have complained about it. Also, because I shoot some sports, I've always been hesitant because of the focusing system. Although that's looking more and more like that's going to be a problem of the past. But what is not a problem of the past is that there still is not those native fast glass lenses for sports and stuff. So that would be holding me back. Now, if we're talking Nikon, they just announced that the D850 specs have been leaked and they look very promising. I have to assume that the sensor in that is going to be amazing. I see that it's going to basically be a large megapixel version of the D5 and that camera looks really, really good. Problem with Nikon is that their future is looking kind of shaky right now. Hopefully Nikon is not going away anytime soon, but it's definitely a time when I would hesitate to jump into a system that is struggling financially, because if you do buy into a system that's struggling financially, there's always that worry that's just going to go away and not be there in the future. And once you invest in a lens system, you want to stick with that lens system because getting rid of all your lenses is a big ordeal and it's often an expensive ordeal. Um, so right now, I think Sony is looking the most appealing other than Canon. Right now, I'm content. I feel like I'm in a good place, but if Sony keeps improving both their lenses and their autofocus, I have to say that Sony is looking like the future. 
Alan Morrison asks, when or if you make the decision to shoot a bracketed set of shots, or if you're deciding that one shot is sufficient, are you doing that based on the histogram or are you doing it based on just the feeling of the environmental light conditions? Typically, you know, to be honest, I don't do it based on the histogram. I do it just kind of based on previous experience and I can kind of look at a scene and be like, oh, I need to bracket this. And a lot of times I will bracket even when I'm not sure that I need to, because I would rather have more dynamic range than I need than not enough when I go to post-process. So anytime I'm shooting directly into the sun, I'm going to bracket guaranteed because if the sun is in your frame, you need a darker frame just to make that sun star smaller. And most times your foreground is going to be incredibly dark if you don't bracket. So anytime I'm shooting directly in the sun, I bracket. And in those situations, I always do a set of brackets covering the sun up with either my thumb or my hand. That way I can get a foreground that has no lens flare happening in it and I can blend that in. Other situations where I'm deciding whether it's one is enough or not enough. If I can get the entire histogram in one frame, I pretty much never bracket anymore. It used to be that I would still bracket that scene just because the the Canon 5D Mark III was not very good when you'd go to take a dark photo and boost the exposure. You'd get lots of banding and lots of noise in your shadows. 5D Mark IV is much, much better in that regard. Because of that better sensor, I don't bracket those kinds of shots anymore. If I can get the entire histogram in one frame, I go with it and I just take the one frame. But most times I can look at a scene and and pretty much tell. Anytime that I'm shooting landscape photography, this is just another one of those tips that you'll hear me say very often. Always have your highlight alert on or your highlight warning on. That way you know if you're blowing out your highlights because most cameras give you more latitude in your shadows than you do in your highlights when it comes to recovering data. You want those shadows to maintain their darkness when you are post-processing, so it's okay if they're fairly dark and darker than you want them to be. But if you blow out your highlights, most likely you're not going to get them back. You want to be very cautious about blowing out highlights more so than worrying about those really dark shadows. Nathan asks, do I have an art booth where I sell my prints? And if so, how are my sales? So I have a couple like restaurants and stuff like that where I sell my prints, but I don't have a gallery and I don't have a shop. I played around with the idea of it until I started putting my work up for sale at various places and it just didn't sell very well. Uh, my sales are not typically very good. I get, you know, a couple purchases maybe a month through my website. I get like one purchase, maybe two a month through the restaurants that I have stuff up at. But typically, I just don't sell a whole lot of prints. And and part of that is that there are so many photographers out there that in a way, it's made good photography less special when people go to buy it. It's sad, but it's true. You know, there are a lot of really amazing landscape photographers out there. Anytime that there's just an abundance of something like good landscape photography, it seems less special to the buyer, you know, and kind of sucks, but it's true. And you know, maybe it's just that my photography isn't great, but I just don't sell a whole lot of prints. To be honest, I sold more when I was first starting because in, in my local community, when I started getting better at landscape photography, I was kind of this novelty like, oh my God, 
we have a great landscape photographer. Let's buy all his stuff. And now I've sold a lot of prints to my local community and they are just not buying anymore. So I guess in a way, maybe I've saturated my own market because it is such a small market. It's easy to saturate. Uh, but typically I just, I don't have a whole lot of print sales. Nathan Goldberg asks, what are some things that you do differently when editing your images for the purpose of printing them out? So I guess this gets into a conversation about monitor calibration. Typically, I always have my monitor calibrated for color, but in most situations, I do not have my monitor calibrated for brightness. The reason for that is because I have it set to a way where when I process a photo and I post it on the internet, I know what it's going to look like on people's phones and tablets and other computers. I keep my monitor fairly bright because that's what they're going to see. That changes when I go to print stuff out. If I was to print out how it looks and how I'm posting it on the internet, if I was going to print that on metal, let's say, uh, it would come out super, super dark. I have a second calibration setting that is set darker to where it's more what it's going to look like for print so I can predict what it's going to look like brightness wise when I print it out. It's a little bit by feel and trial and error. It's not an exact science for me, but I've gotten used to it and being used to it and knowing what to expect is pretty much the whole point. I have that second calibration setting where I will switch to that. Then I'll do a couple final tweaks in Photoshop and export at full resolution and all that stuff. Um, but typically it involves me brightening my shot up at least one stop for print uh, because that's almost the difference between what people are seeing on their phones where they're seeing this backlit device. It's punchy and it's vibrant and all of that stuff. But if I was to try to print that out, it would end up far, far too dark. It usually involves me just doing a brightness contrast adjustment and adding right around a stop of brightness. That does open up the shadows a little bit more. And typically for print, that's a good thing because a lot of my shots are fairly dark and I want people to be able to see into those shadows because you know, three quarters of my photo is in the shadows. Uh, I typically just do a brightness contrast adjustment and boost around a stop. And that'll be good for print. Tom Moore's asks tips for helping make a landscape image, tell a story. That's kind of a tough one because kind of like how we talk about mood and feeling. It's one of those things that's kind of difficult to just put your finger on. It's one of those things where you look at an image, but it's hard to put into words. Telling a story typically uh, comes down to a couple things. Having a subject or a main feature in your image, directing the eye on a path through the image. That way it's starting at one place and kind of finishing at another and giving a sense of feeling and mood when a person looks at a photo. And that usually comes from the way it's processed or some kind of special light event or something like that. So like when you walk up to a scene, typically you're there because of something, because of this amazing overlook or because of this amazing rock formation or beautiful forest or really interesting tree. And that becomes a part of what your, your photograph is about. The more complex your scene is and the more things that you can add into your photo that all work together, the more complex and detailed your story becomes. But you don't want your story to be convoluted and difficult that the average person doesn't get it when they first look at the image. So for that reason, you can't, we're not trying to tell a novel. <laughs> we're trying to tell a short story. It's a really difficult thing 
to really put into words, but just trying to have something special about the photo and something that's different than what the average person is going to take. That's kind of what tells the story. You have this amazing rock formation that everybody goes to, but being there during an interesting, uh, interesting weather event or interesting part of the night where it's just beautiful and tranquil or maybe putting stars above it, something different. That's what helps tell the story. You're trying to tell the story of something other than what everybody sees all the time. And that's what makes people kind of stop and look at it. So for me, trying to draw the eye and having an interesting subject and an interesting set of light conditions, that gets the story started. And then how you post-process it and put your own spin on that that particular set of, of subjects is kind of the voice that you give the story. Such a strange thing to try to talk about, but hopefully that makes some kind of sense. That was a difficult one, Tom. Thanks a lot. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you guys so much. Thank you for taking the time to go rate and review on both Stitcher and on iTunes. If you're ever wanting to look at the show notes, you can find those at landscapephotographypodcast.com. You can also find all of my workshops and I'm going to have a new video coming out soon. And you can find that stuff over at nickpagephotography.com. Thank you guys so much for tuning into this week and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.